Welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner. We are continuing our podcast series from home during the coronavirus pandemic. As a result of the following is a lightly edited version of a policy call we have already held. We will now proceed with the podcast. This is David Metzner. Welcome to this week's macro call. I want to say that this week's call is one of the more important calls we've done in a long time. We felt we were moving from the unpredictability of the Trump era to probably a more orderly Biden era. However, the first week of Joe Biden as president has proven just the opposite. Joining me on the call is Chris Sirwinski, our lead international analyst. Chris will lead the call, along with John East, our head of research, John Turret, Larry McDonald, acclaimed author of Bear Traps, newsletter and advisor, and Bart Oosterveld. With that, I'd like to turn it over to Chris to lead today's discussion. Thanks, David, and thanks, Larry, in particular, for joining us this week. John East, I'd love to start in D.C. Pandemic relief continues to be the talk of the town. It has been so for the last nine months. With the new Biden administration, we're hoping for some bipartisan discussions. Those negotiations are ongoing. They don't yet appear to be yielding results, however. And what throws a wrinkle in these discussions even more are the pending impeachment proceedings in the Senate. The House transmitted the article to the Senate, and now the trial is going to begin in early February. What, what does that do for these pandemic negotiations that have not really succeeded in getting running off the ground? It puts everything on hold in a manner until the trial is over in the Senate. There is an expiration of unemployment benefits in mid-March, so I expect that lawmakers are going to be negotiating close to that deadline. In the last negotiations on pandemic relief last year, Congress blew past multiple deadlines, but now that you have, you know, every branch controlled by Democrats, I don't think that the agenda is going to be set in such a manner that we have the likelihood of blowing past all the deadlines, but I would expect us to negotiate up close to them. So when you say that the Democrats are in control and that, you know, prevents or at least diminishes the risk of blowing past all these deadlines, is that because they're more likely just to move to the reconciliation process that we've discussed at length if Republicans don't come around to their, you know, way of thinking? Well, reconciliation is definitely being used as a back pocket strategy. The House yesterday rejiggered its schedule to allow for a potential reconciliation bill to move through the House chamber. It still takes a long time. It's not clear to me that reconciliation would take less time than getting to a bipartisan deal because you'd have to get the House and Senate to agree to budget resolutions and go through that process, and it takes a while. And right now, a lot of business on the Senate side is going to be on hold. So I'm not sure that changes the timeline, but it's certainly an outstanding threat that helps impel Republicans to negotiate, although I don't think you need it. You have eight Republicans and eight Democrats who are part of this bipartisan group in the Senate. You have their counterpart in the House, the Problem Solvers Caucus, very thin majorities in both chambers. If you can get those eight Republicans in the Senate on board, you probably have more than eight votes. And so you've hit 60 or almost hit 60 already. So if if we've been negotiating this $1.9 trillion package that, that Biden clearly wants, 
And, and these eight Republicans who he's really targeting at this point have yet to come to an agreement on, you know, those provisions. How do you get them on board if, if you want to get, you know, one bill? The, the administration has made it clear that they want one bill. How can you possibly get those Republicans on board to that $1.9 trillion number without changing anything? Well, I don't think you can probably get to $1.9 trillion. You have to drop some of your demands, and quite frankly, you might have to drop them through reconciliation anyway. A big one that is giving people pause, and not just on the Republican side, is raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. It is vociferously opposed by the restaurant and hospitality industry, and also it's sort of salt in their wounds because they weren't given a dedicated pot of pandemic relief money, which does have 52 votes, at least in the Senate, if you just look at sponsors of the legislation last Congress. So I think you have to lessen your demand, quite frankly. And if you were to move to reconciliation, it's not clear that some things that everybody wants, like vaccine deployment money, even that might not meet reconciliation rules. So you might get half a loaf through reconciliation, and you might get half a loaf through being bipartisan. I still think that the White House has indicated, and President Biden himself has indicated, that he would prefer to start off his tenure as president with a bipartisan bill. I don't think we should count that out yet. Clearly, people are nervous because it's taking longer, but the White House ask has things in it that are not directly related to pandemic relief, like raising the minimum wage. But further, we haven't expended a lot of the money from the trillion-dollar plan that was passed at the beginning of this year. And so there are some lawmakers who say, well, we need an accounting of the money that we've already appropriated. And two, there's concern on both sides, not just the Republican side. And the White House indicated yesterday that it understands this concern, that the money that we're giving, let's say $1,400 checks, may not be targeted to need as appropriately as it could be. That, of course, raises its own implementation issues as to as soon as you change the formula for how that's distributed, then there is a delay as you have to update you know, computer systems and other things. It's very likely going to push back the filing deadline for taxes this year. It seems like there's the one prevailing idea with the administration. Perhaps they're more pragmatic than, you know, than we're giving them credit for it at this moment. But just let's say that the administration wants to get that one deal with bipartisan support. It seems to me, Larry, that the market, you know, sees past this and is sold on the fact that they're just going to decrease the number to that $600 billion to a trillion dollar range and get that done on a much quicker timeline. There are two strategies, one that the market thinks is going to happen, and then the one that the administration, which is negotiating this package, appears to want. You know, what, what's the practical impact here, Larry, with the fact that it doesn't seem like the strategy is really decided yet? Yeah, th- thanks, Chris. You know, three, four weeks ago, it was viewed that this would be a slam dunk. It was viewed that this fiscal stimulus would be, you know, in, in the market, or at least the bill would pass late February, early March. And now, you know, you have this problem with, with the virus globally that's potentially going to leak back into the United States, even though hospitalizations have come way back down. But net, net, if, if there's this delay, it's a big impact on the dollar. You know, the U.S. was supposed to really come out of this first, and now, you know, we're going to have this fiscal delay. 
So it, it's at the same time with the, with the vaccine around the world, distribution problems, all of this is strengthening the dollar. Whereas if you'd done this fiscal large fast, in some perverse ways, it would weaken the dollar. So because the bending is delayed, it's strengthening the dollar. I know it's, it sounds crazy, but more importantly, our 21 systemic leading indicators are just making a lot of noise because of this, this systemic risk tied to these hedge funds. And this, once again, probably puts pressure on Washington as well, because this has systemic implications. Long-term capital was only $130 billion problem. The bailout was $5 billion, right? So $130 billion problem, $5 billion. That's the size of the hedge fund. These, you know, 10 hedge funds, it's not just one. These 10 hedge funds are probably controlling 80, 90 billion in their leverage. So the, the total amount of capital that these hedge funds control is 500 billion to a trillion. So that's how big your problem is. And that's why it's leaking into the systemic risk quadrant. Now, we're, we're watching carefully overnight repo rate, money market funds. So we're looking at those early indicators. So far, those are fine, but we are seeing leakage into you know high yield and some parts of the credit market. So that's why equities are lower. They're lower because, number one, as you, as you point out, this fiscal really bridge is now potentially out to April. That's way, way outside of expectations. And this AMC slash GameStop problem is really serious in the sense that you've got venture capital guys like Elon Musk and the Reddit crowd all ganging up on these hedge funds. And it's just a lot of dead bodies that haven't come to the surface yet. You brought up the April timeline. John, I want to circle back to you real quick and close the loop on the pandemic relief discussions here. What's your base case expectation for when we get a package and how much it will be? I've penciled in $1 trillion, and I think we get it by mid-March, but of course these discussions are fluid and that's subject to revision. Well, it's your base case that you get it by mid-March. There's a sizable risk. Talks end up you know, moving past that. That's not an outside chance. No, but despite the difficulties in negotiations, I do think that people really want to move quickly. Of course, there's also impeachment that got thrown up in the middle of this, and it's not helpful. Yeah, it absolutely throws a wrench in, into ongoing negotiations and perhaps stirs up a little bit more of the hyperpartisanship that we have in D.C. and exacerbates any type of deal-making that can come down the road. Just one more topic here that we've been looking a lot at at ACG Analytics, which is Biden's energy policy. I think that you know we wrote in the macro note this week that you know, some of these actions that he's taken, whether it's freeze on drilling on federal lands, new permits, leasing, all of that, some of that was expected, but the pace at which President Biden has gone and implemented these actions has been quicker than expected. At the same time, you know, he's still approving individual leases. So he's trying to smooth the way, but I think that, you know, whether it's industry groups or individual companies themselves are alarmed at how aggressive the action has been. What do you think is next in this energy policy world for Biden when it comes to aggressive anti-fossil fuel policies? Well, I am not surprised, but I do think that the pace is going to slow a bit because a lot of these are, are basically hortatory pronouncements to regulatory agencies that this is the new agenda but they have to go and implement it. One aspect of the structure that Biden has created is to have so many people involved in environmental policy that the lines of command are sort of blurry. And I don't know yet how people are going to work out power sharing in this sphere. But one thing that the Biden administration ha has said it's going to do is to try to coordinate environmental policy through all regulatory 
regulatory bodies, even ones you might not think have anything to do with the environment, there's going to be an attempt to have a cohesive federal policy. Whether that's workable or not, I don't know. I think it's a difficult setup. And so then the way that this works into, you know, any type of infrastructure package later this year, Biden already said, for example, moving entirely to a federal fleet of electric vehicles, Schumer has suggested that he thinks Biden should move forward with invoking a national emergency on the climate, which would you know, give him much greater authority to implement, you know, other climate-friendly policies. And then just yesterday, I think it was, John Kerry was talking up additional U.S. emissions reductions plan. I, I guess the final question I'd have for you on the D.C. policy side of this is, how should we expect some of these ideas to be wrapped into an infrastructure package? Well, the biggest issue is going to be sort of like we're seeing with this initial pandemic relief ask that you've taken on more than will be palatable to many Republicans. And so it will impel the party to try to move an infrastructure package through reconciliation that's always been on the table, but it becomes especially critical if you've alienated so many Republicans in doing so that you don't think you can get to 60 or more. Historically, once you do get consensus in the Senate on an infrastructure bill, you usually don't get 60 votes, you usually get more like 80. So I think that's a danger, but there are Democrats and they're not going to want to really oppose the president's priorities. But this week you had Senator Tester and Heinrich and Manchin of West Virginia really express a little bit of concern about what these rules might do to the economies of their respective states. And there was an admission that maybe the administration would, on a case-by-case basis, try to take some ameliorative action in regard to specific states. But I think what you're doing is you're banking that you don't lose any Democrats in the process, and that is maybe not the best assumption to make. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Well, thanks, John, for some of this insight into policy machinery here here in D.C. Now, I want to shift to the other John, Turek. Uh, it wouldn't be the macro call if we didn't comment on the Fed yesterday. It seems like everything yesterday went as expected, right? Yeah, thanks, Chris. I mean, I think broadly it did go as expected. I mean, the Fed kind of used September meeting last year and the December meeting last year to kind of queue up their forward guidance in terms of interest rates and balance sheets so that especially the beginning of this year would be a relatively unchanged. I think what we did learn, especially yesterday, was that the Fed is starting to lay the groundwork to be very preemptive in terms of how they're not going to respond to when inflation pressures start rising in the middle of this year. They definitely, you know, in the press conference especially, that Powell referred to these pressures as transitory, similar to how Yellen did in 2015-16. And, you know, that thematically will be, you know, probably very important in terms of their reaction function going forward. And then, you know, on policy more broadly, I think the Fed was pretty consistent in terms of saying that the, the days of them reacting to expected outcomes is gone. And then, I guess, touching on the financial stability thing quickly, I mean, there was definitely, you know, an amplified amount of question and interest relative to what was going on in the market yesterday. And I think there are probably two things that are important for the Fed in this sense is that one, that even though their third unofficial mandate is financial stability, it's going to be a very high bar for them to actually concern themselves in a policy setting outside of their macro prudential FSOC tools, et cetera, for them to kind of jump into that. But I will say, you know, in terms of Larry raising some alarm bells, 
the Fed would be concerned about a spilling over of liquidity issues that, you know, would make their response kind of tied. So I, I definitely think it's something they're watching. But in terms of financial stability risk kind of trickling into policy, the bar is very high. Bringing it back to something that you said earlier, Larry, that's going to feed into, you know, the broader market. I, I want to ask Bart, give us a little bit of information here on one general caseload updates broadly over the last two weeks. And then also the relative vaccine distribution dynamics, because that is obviously going to feed into uh, where we go from here and the winners and losers. And Larry touched on it as being important, and I certainly agree. Yeah, thank you, Chris. The global caseload growth is down to 10% this week, basically driven by declining growth in, in Europe. All major European economies are in some form of lockdown or severe restrictions on economic activity. And so the, the case growth is starting to reflect that and come down. It's still very high in the UK. That just for a special mention, we're at 20% down from closer to 30% last week. So in terms of vaccine distribution, Chris, I think that you're right, the critical topic. So everybody's behind their own ideal schedule, but as Especially the EU is often a much slower start than desirable. And you saw the IMF yesterday update their economic growth forecast to reflect they're really a, a lost quarter in Europe. That's the way I'm starting to think about at the beginning of this year. You know, the, the next generation EU package, while well, they passed it late last year, that money has yet to be spent. And so that's where you see a, a significant drag on global growth. Real quickly, guys, is that outside the United States, you still have 64 trillion in GDP. So the vaccine element to emerging markets is very powerful. And the different vaccines we're expecting J and J phase three results are going to be incredibly important for for the emerging market. So as these mutations hit EM, it really upsets the apple cart because the rest of the world was looking, you know, three weeks ago a lot stronger than the United States in terms of coming out of this. Now they're getting EM, so that upset you know your your net delta. The upside of positivity vaccines onto emerging markets is so important. And I would add, let's not forget, China tightened policy this week for the first time. They're basically about $20 billion in liquidity out of the banking system. So our thesis six months ago when we were on this call was get get long EM because emerging markets in China are going to be first out and the U.S. is going to be last out. And that, that thesis worked out beautifully at a weaker dollar, strong EM, commodity-producing countries like Brazil, Chile, they're doing great. This vaccine, there was a punch to the gut in that whole thesis. I suspect, and I, and I think by the spring, this will present over the next two, three weeks the phenomenal buying opportunity. So we, we want to use this opportunity to, to buy the dips in the reflation slash EM trade. And you mentioned Brazil here, and that's actually a great transition into Brian Dean. Some of the macro indicators are a little bit alarming in the short run, at least right now in Brazil. But, you know, if there's one thing from a political side of things and a policy side of things that can get the country back on track as well, it would be political stability and a return to the reform agenda. And there's nothing more important to that right now than the leadership race in the Chamber of Deputies. Now, Brian, the election itself will be on the 1st of February. So we've talked about it at length on our previous calls. Can you just give us a quick update as to our expectations? Thank you very much, Chris. Yes, on Monday, the election for the speakership will take place. The outgoing speaker, who had turned into a, a nemesis to President Bolsonaro, 
has his hand-picked candidate, Balea Fossi, who has had to make an alliance with the left in order to accrue votes. The pro-Bolsonaro candidate, Arthur Lira, continues to lead in the available vote count, and we expect him to prevail on Monday, which would be a positive signal for the continuation of the reform agenda, tax reform, and the uh, hugely important fiscal reform. The race is very close. Lira's probable victory, however, bodes well for a uh, continuation of the economy minister Getty's agenda. But as it stands right now, the, the pro-reform, pro-Bolsonaro candidate is expected to win and has said that he will protect the spending caps and strongly uh, endorse the movement of Getty's reforms through Congress. That position is determinant in what goes to the floor or not. So it is a highly important day. I would like to thank everyone for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our team of analysts for offering their unique insights. You can also follow us on Twitter for further insight into capital markets and the political economy. If you wish to reach out for more information, please email us at research at acg-analytics.com. Everyone have a good day. Thank you very much.